This morning we're reading again from the book of the Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. I invite you to open your Bible or one of the pew Bibles for the reading of God's Word. Let us ask His blessing. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you have revealed yourself to us supremely in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, and have preserved that living word for us in Scripture. We ask now for the blessing of your Holy Spirit to illumine our minds, to open our hearts, Grant us that grace of faith whereby we may receive your word for what it is, the word of God. To the glory of your name, amen. Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And now unto him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ, be all praise, honor, glory, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What are the marks of true conversion? This morning, and if the Lord wills, next Sunday, we're going to take another look at the conversion experience of Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, and, and then at his life as an apostle, in order to identify some, some of the marks of true conversion. Now, this morning we're going to look at only one mark of true conversion, which means that this sermon is part one, and this sermon today, I readily acknowledge, is incomplete in and of itself. So if you're watching by way of the live stream, I do want to encourage you and everyone else here to tune in next week, because, again, in terms of the marks of true conversion, the sermon today is incomplete in and of itself. Now, already you might be thinking, oh, oh my goodness, 
I haven't had a Damascus Road experience like that of Saul of Tarsus with a blinding light, an audible voice falling to the ground, being struck blind, and then having the scales fall from my eyes. I've never had anything like that happen to me. Relax. Of course you've never had anything like that happen to you. You are not Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was not only converted to Jesus Christ, but also called and commissioned by Jesus Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He had a unique role in church history. His conversion experience on the Damascus Road with all of the supernatural, visible, audible manifestations is not normative, not the norm, not the standard, not the test for true conversion. We don't read of any other conversion experience like his in the New Testament. And so we shouldn't expect to experience the same kind of phenomena in our own lives. But, even though Saul's Damascus Road experience, conversion experience is not normative for us, we can, we can identify marks of true conversion in Paul's life, and we can examine ourselves in the light of those marks of true conversion. So, here we go. One. It's the only one for today, so tune in next week as well. Number one. Paul could tell the story of his conversion. He could testify to his personal experience of the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul didn't talk about his experience all the time, and neither should we. Paul wasn't obsessed with or focused upon his own personal experience, and neither should we be on our own. Paul preached Christ and not himself, and so should we. But, but, on at least two occasions, recorded in Acts 22 and Acts 26, While defending himself against a Jewish mob in Jerusalem, that's Acts 22, and then in his trial before King Agrippa, Acts 26, Paul told the story. Paul told the story of how Jesus Christ revealed himself to him. Of how Jesus Christ overwhelmed him and saved him and by his sovereign all-powerful, irresistible grace, and called him into a new life, gave him a new life. And if you've been truly converted, then you've got your story to tell. That's a mark of true conversion. If Jesus Christ has made himself known to you through his word and Spirit has come to you, opened your heart by the working of His Holy Spirit through the Word, drawn Himself 
to you in faith and love by the Holy Spirit has opened your heart to receive Him, then you have your story to tell. It does not have to be a dramatic or spectacular or sensational story. But if you have been truly converted, you have a story to tell. Now, one of the most respected, reformed theologians alive today, whom I have been blessed to get to know, shared his story with me. He told me that he had not grown up in a Christian home. As a young adult, he was not a believer. But a friend invited him to church, and so he went. And then, when he walked out of the church, he realized that he had become a Christian. He had been converted. He had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and had been granted the gift of saving faith. The Holy Spirit had worked a miracle in his heart and mind. He believed the gospel. He had been truly converted. He walked into the church, not a Christian. He walked out of the church, a Christian. <laughs> that was his story. The beginning of his story with Jesus. Now that doesn't sound very dramatic or spectacular or sensational, but don't miss the point is a testimony to the absolute sovereignty of God in the salvation of His elect. It's a powerful testimony to the absolute, omnipotent, and gracious power of God in the calling and conversion of dead sinners into new life with faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've been truly converted... No matter the details of your story, no matter the circumstances of your story, but just like the Apostle Paul's story, there's going to be a strong and clear note about the absolute sovereignty of God in your salvation. There's going to be a kind of mystery about it, a realization that your salvation is not something that you chose for yourself, but that God chose for you. That your conversion is not something that you did for yourself, but that God did for you and in you by His almighty power and sovereign grace in His good pleasure for His own glory. No one gets to know Jesus Christ any other way than by the absolute sovereignty of God in the work of their salvation. That was true for, the, for Saul of Tarsus, and that's true for you and me and every other believer. Can you tell that story? Simply, personally, and naturally in your own words? It's sort of like 
falling in love. Now, if I were to ask you, how did you meet your spouse? What was it about him or her that attracted you to him or her? And when did you know that you knew that you knew that you knew that he or she was the one? You could tell that story, couldn't you? You've probably told that story many times in different little nuances, you know, every time you tell it, right? Well... Are you, men, women, single single people of any age, all ages, are you married to Jesus Christ in a bond of faith and love? You can tell that story about him and you. Simply, personally, naturally, in your own words. That's a mark of true conversion. And just as with the Apostle Paul, the story is about Jesus Christ. So let's all tune in here. It's not about, and I'm not talking about some vague religious experience or mystical feeling or some, you know, Religious emotion or a spiritual high in the Rocky Mountains or a pull yourself up by your bootstraps, straighten up and fly right moral effort on your own. No. I'm not talking about God in the abstract in general. It's about God in person. In the person of Jesus Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. And it's about you. Embracing Jesus Christ in love and entrusting yourself to him just as you did your spouse. Or you might say it's like telling the story of first meeting your best friend. You know, Jesus is known as the friend of sinners. Are you a sinner? Is he your friend? Can you tell that story? Simply and naturally and personally in your own words? That's a mark of true conversion. Okay, now, just in case... Just in case you, in case you might be feeling anxious at this point, maybe you've never been called upon to tell your story. Maybe you've never thought about how you would tell your story. Well, that's your homework. That's, that's a very good spiritual exercise. Go home and think about it deeply. For a long time, 
Tell yourself your story. Tell yourself the story of Jesus and his love in your life. If you can't tell yourself your story, then you sure can't tell anyone else. But, if you don't have a story to tell of Jesus and his love in your life, not even to yourself, that might possibly be a sign that you have not been truly converted and are still dead in your trespasses and sins and under the wrath of God. You might need to think about that and cry out to God to give you a new heart and a new mind and a new life of faith and love in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, let me assure you that there are no cookie-cutter conversions, no cookie-cutter conversions. One of the old Puritan preachers, Richard Baxter, wrote, God breaketh not all men's hearts alike. In other words, God deals with us individually and personally according to his way and his plan. And the Westminster Confession states that God the Holy Spirit works when, where, and how he pleases to call and convert his elect. So don't compare your story to anyone else's. And it's also the case that as we go through life and we mature and deepen in faith and we look back over our lives and the story of Jesus in our lives, you know, we get we get new insights, we see things we'd never seen before, and sometimes, you know, the lines are a little bit fuzzy. There, there is this mystery. After all, it is God dealing with our lives, and there are things about that we can't, you know, perfectly understand or put in a little box, a little category. That's okay. That's all right. God moves in a mysterious way in our life, but the thing is, if we know that Christ has given us a new life with him as our Lord and Savior. We have that story. Now, the interesting thing is, as different as all our stories may be, whenever Christians get together and share their testimonies, as we do when elders and deacons are examined for ordination, the thing is, as different as the personal stories may be, the main character is always the same and very recognizable. And that's the reason that true Christians have such a bond of unity, because we all have the same Savior and Lord as the main character in the personal stories of of our individual lives. That's a wonderful thing. But one of the testimonies that Christian parents and grandparents and Reformed pastors rejoice to hear, goes like this. I was raised in a faithful, loving, intentional 
disciple-making family, and I can't remember a day when I did not trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Now, there's nothing overtly dramatic, spectacular, or sensational about that testimony, but it is one of the most powerful testimonies to the sovereign faithfulness of God and His covenant mercies to believers and their children from generation to generation to God be the glory. Now, of course, children who are being raised and nurtured in Christian faith, our children, the children of this church family, will we'll go through a growing process physically, intellectually, emotionally, psychologically, into adult maturity. And our prayer is that their childhood faith will mature into personal, individual faith in their adulthood. And, and for us, within the visible church, as the household of God, if there is a basic biblical norm for the calling and conversion of sinners into Christian faith, it is just this, the nurture, discipline, discipling, and evangelization of our own children, so that as they grow and mature, their childhood faith will become individual, personal, and mature faith in Jesus Christ throughout their lives. And in such cases, God's supernatural work of conversion in that child's heart may be done quietly, as it were, secretly, perhaps unidentifiable in terms of specific time and place or particular circumstance. What matters, the mark of true conversion, is that the child grows up and, independent of his or her parents, continues to follow Christ in grateful obedience, and continues to repent of his or her sins every day, and continues to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, if a faithful adult Christian says, I can't remember a day when I didn't trust Jesus as my Savior and Lord, then that simple testimony is, yes, a testimony to the supernatural converting work of God the Holy Spirit in that person's life. That's the bottom line or the beginning point of that person's story, perhaps your story. Now, of course, there will be more that needs to be said and must be said about growing in faith and following Christ day by day, facing challenges in life through faith in Christ, perhaps wrestling with doubts and wanderings, as well as blessings and spiritual assurance. But the point is, it's a spiritual blessing, and it is a supernatural spiritual blessing to be able to begin your story by saying, I was raised in a faithful, loving, intentionally disciple-making family and church family, and I really can't remember a day when I didn't trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. And along with that, the point is that true conversion is not necessarily, it's not necessarily, not necessarily defined by first living a hellion's life in wild rebellion against God, hurting others, harming yourself, offending God until the day you are struck with a lightning bolt, figuratively speaking. Now, those kinds of 
conversions do happen. Yes, they do. And we surely praise God when those kinds of conversions take place. But I surely hope (laughs) that that will not be the case with the children whom we are raising in our church family. How much more uh, of a greater blessing will it be for them to say with mature and true faith, I can't remember a day when I didn't trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But now the caution. I am not saying that a person becomes a true Christian automatically or naturally just by being born into a Christian family. I am not saying that. How many times have I heard somebody say something such as, well, of course I'm a Christian. What else would I be? I was born in the South. My parents took me to church. I've been baptized and confirmed, so I'm a Christian. I guess if I'd been born in India, maybe I'd be a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist. If that's your story, then there's probably a really good possibility that you've never been truly converted are still dead in your trespasses and sins and under the wrath of God and know nothing of the love of Jesus and the saving grace of God in your life, even if you're very active in the church. Because true conversion, first of all, is not a matter of your natural birth into a Christian family. It's a matter of supernatural birth by the Holy Spirit into the family of God with Jesus as your brother and his father as your father. And true conversion is not a matter of your external activity in the life of the church. It's about the internal activity of God in your life through his son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Scripture says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. I implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And to everyone who has a story to tell of Jesus and his love in your life, whatever the details may be, let me encourage you. to marvel at and to rejoice in the miraculous, supernatural, sovereign grace of God in your life. Think about it. God, the eternal Son of God in your life. Take comfort in 
the great love and rich mercy of God upon you through His Son, Jesus Christ. As the hymn says, let yourself be lost in wonder, love, and praise before Him. And give thanks for His promise that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. If the Lord wills, next Sunday, we will look again at the life of the Apostle Paul for insights on the marks of true conversion. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the wonders of your love and the working of your Holy Spirit to give us new life and life everlasting through your Son, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself up for us. Grant us grace, dear Father, to come to him, to find in him life and life abundant, to the glory of your name. Amen. In response to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand and affirm our faith as we say together the Philippian Creed based on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 2. Dearly beloved Christians, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.